Thank you for listening to the Prairie Oaks Pulpit Podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday morning sermons here at Prairie Oaks Baptist Church in Prairie Grove, Arkansas. Thank you for being a participant in this ministry through this media. And thank you to those who helped make it possible. Now may God bless you and keep you. And let's get to the message. Last week we went through Luke's Gospel and saw as... Uh, both, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they unpack for us just that evening. John gives us the most details, but he doesn't actually mention the Lord's Supper. And as they do so, they put it in the context of Passover. And Jesus was fulfilling Passover, and as he was teaching the Passover to them, he was applying those parts of it to what he was about to do in the new covenant, right? And so uh, they give us what happened, but they don't necessarily give us all the significance of it. They just give us what Jesus said. What we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is the apostle Paul putting into the context of a church And as we're going to see, the church was having some issues. And so it's interesting that in the midst of problems, we have this. As he resets forward to them, this is what I've taught you before. This is what it's supposed to look like. And so we're going to walk our way through it. There's going to be uh, some places to... to, uh, to kind of pause and, and, and think and, and work our way through it. And I will reference some of the other parts of Paul's letter. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's a lengthy reading, verses 17 through 34. But if you're able, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pause for prayer. Father, just thankful for the time in your word. I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who, who inspired uh, the Apostle Paul, to write these words to this church, but also to us as we look over their shoulders, Lord, to, to understand what your instructions are to us as well. And I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who we celebrate as we read these passages and as we, we contemplate what his sacrifice was for us. And I thank you, Lord, for having the desire and the plan and the sovereignty to incorporate me and us into your plan to save us, Lord, from our sins and our foolishness, O Lord, as we sang a few minutes ago, the follies of sin, that we would turn from those and seek after you more and more each day. We love you because you first loved us. And in the name of Jesus Christ and for his kingdom, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I read that, I had a conversation with a fellow pastor. We, we know who Joe is. But uh, we were talking about the Lord's Supper. And he was expressing his concern because... He knows his flock and he knows that he doesn't know some of these people. And and so he was concerned. And as you read through the last of this passage, you understand where his concern comes from. That there is, that God takes the Lord's Supper very seriously. And that Joe is concerned about them partaking of it unworthily. And so we talked there and and, and we, we looked at it from, from different perspectives and things. And, and so he was excited how we're walking through this over this month to see what the Bible actually teaches on it and what's to be done. And so uh, at the end of the month, I'm supposed to call Joe back and we're going to have a conversation for another hour and a half until my phone dies and, and, and just talk about what the Lord has been teaching us. Um, but be praying for Joe. That's a little side, uh, side thing there. Uh, I am thankful for that relationship I have with him. Um, but let's walk through this because he's right in that there's definitely a problem in Corinth. There were a lot of problems in Corinth. If you read through, it always has fascinated me. People will be like, well, what New Testament book do you want to do a Bible study through? Corinthians. And it's like, why? They're a dumpster fire. Why do you want to go through it? But I guess we know we're a dumpster fire and we need the teachings as well. But uh, yeah, Corinthians is a hard one. There's lots of problems in Corinth. And every day I think America looks a little more like Corinth. Um, 
but specifically in chapter 11, which it's, it is connected to what comes before it, there were some problems that when they came together, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit because we're kind of expected to see how it would have interacted in their culture and how they did things. They didn't always get to get together. You know, they met in homes and things like that. So to have every Christian in Corinth get together, it was kind of a big deal. But when they came together, it wasn't really together. They were coming and all being in the one place. But as we read through this, where we talk about them, where one is eating and another one's going hungry and all this, they were bringing in their culture, their traditions as Greeks, as Corinthians, and it was a very stratified society by class. The upper class didn't necessarily want to interact with the working class and the slaves and those. And so they would have their meal and they would eat lavishly, but there was no expectation that they would share with those who were poorer than them because that's not, that wasn't the way the class system works. And we like to think as Americans, we don't have a class system, but we probably do more than we want to admit. And some of us are old enough to remember when that class system even invaded the church and that, well, those people have to worship somewhere else. We don't want them in our church because they're a different color. We know that happened. And so even then, we were guilty of following our culture traditions instead of Christ. And so we see here where Paul says this is a problem. There's a problem and it is. And we know that there were lots of factions in in Corinth because not only was it stratified by class, there were people who were like, well, I like Apollos better and I'm following him. And others were like, well, I like Paul better. I'm going to follow him. And they followed their favorite teacher. They followed their, their class. They followed all these different... And, and Paul, he uses a word that in the Greek doesn't get translated. It just gets straight to us. It's called heresy. And that word, it, it has a very negative connotation in our minds. And it probably should. Because while it may not always be because they're believing something wrong doctrinally, it always is something wrong in the heart of those people and in the church when there are divisions and factions and, and this disunity, and this disharmony within. And, and it comes back to, it's because we've forgotten who Christ is and what he's done for us. That Christ has come to bring down the barriers. That Christ has come to flip this world's values on its head. Um, I'm going to reference it a lot, but uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount this year, spending some extra time in that, oh my gosh, the Sermon on the Mount is a world shaker. When The more you spend time in it, the harder it is. And so I'm excited that our teens are going to be seeing a lot of the Lord's, uh, the Sermon on the Mount as they prepare for Bible quiz. It's right there in the heart of Matthew chapters 1 through 10. Um, and so... They were forgetting who Christ is and what he had accomplished for us. 
And one of those things is, is this picture of bringing all these different people and making them a new creature, a new thing in Christ. And that we, we find our unity in Christ. And so verses 17 through, through 22, the Apostle Paul says, this is what the problems are. There's factions. You're not, you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper. You're just partaking of your own supper. And you're, you're causing not only shame and harm to others, but you are an embarrassment to the name of Christ. And this isn't to be the, this isn't the pattern that the Lord gave us. And so then the next segment there, verses 23 through 26, it's this beautiful description of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. It's the pattern from Jesus. And so some of it will sound very familiar. Some of it will be, uh, will be a little different than what we saw in Luke. But the Apostle Paul says, so I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And some will say that that was delivered directly from Christ and revelation to the Apostle Paul. And that's fine. It's very likely. We know that a lot of what Paul taught, he got straight from Christ and the vision that he received. But it's also the same terminology used of uh, both Old Testament as well as New Testament disciple makers. They go back to, this was taught by our original teacher. If they were Old Testament, they went back to Sinai. If we're Christians, then we go back to Jesus. And this was delivered by Jesus to his disciples who delivered to their disciples and passed down. And we get to read over their shoulders because that's what the New Testament is, is this going through what is being passed on. And so we can take confidence either way. This is from Jesus. This is his pattern that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, take eat. This is my body. He's taking that physical symbol and telling us this is the spiritual reality that is there. And this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. To remember. And, I, and I'm skipping a point here. I just realized in, in verse 24, it says, when he had given thanks. And uh, one of the, ra- I, I told someone that I had went down a rabbit hole yesterday when I was doing my study. And, and one of my rabbit holes was, where do we get the names for the Lord's Supper? or communion. Um, it's from Paul's letters. We just read one of them. He described it as the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. If you flip back a page to chapter 10, he calls it communion. And uh, when uh, you read it in the Greek, when you read that word given thanks, it actually would ring a bell. It's Eucharist. What? I didn't think we did Eucharist. Well, we don't because we have disagreements with those teachings that they pour into something that they call Eucharist. But it is in the Greek there, and it is teaching us something that we do need to keep in mind, and that is 
This ceremony, this Lord's Supper communion, is a time of giving thanks. Giving thanks specifically for our salvation because it was impossible that we could be reconciled to God without the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Impossible that we could be good enough. Impossible that our sins could be paid for by cows and sheep and goats. It was impossible that any human could be good enough outside of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and our Savior. And so, first and foremost, we are giving thanks. And then as I read there in verse 24, after he'd given thanks, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we talked about that last week. This is about remembering. Because in in the Passover, they were going back to remembering that they were slaves in Egypt, right? And it was to, to cultivate in them that that's where they could be. That's kind of where they deserve to be. But God intervened. God intervened. And we definitely were in bondage in slavery to sin. In the throes of serving the kingdom of darkness. But God intervened. God rescued us. You know, we have this picture in our heads of, you know, we've got our special forces in the military and they can swoop in and rescue the hostages and pull them out. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's such a great story when that happens. But that pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ accomplished for us when he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness because we were the terrorists and had to be changed and converted. We were not there against our will, but according to our will. And we had to be changed so that we could be rescued from there to his kingdom of light. And so remember, this is what Jesus did to rescue us. Remember, remembering there. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper. This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I don't want to reteach everything that we talked about last week on the new covenant. But we are not just rescued and removed from there to be put, transferred into the kingdom of light. But we are given a new nature as promised in the new covenant. We are given his Holy Spirit and a new heart. And the warfare continues with, between the Holy Spirit in my new heart and the old flesh that still wants to do what's wrong. And it's a nasty war. But Christ has given us the victory. I don't have to obey those sinful impulses anymore. I get weary in that war. I'm telling you every morning it's a new battle and I have to surrender to Christ because otherwise I will surrender to temptation, whatever those multitude of temptations are. And you have to do the same thing. Surrender to Christ 
put on the armor of God and march forth in his victory because in our flesh we are weak. We're already defeated. Only in Christ. And so we see here in the body and in the cup, the cup in my blood, as often as you drink it, you do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. I like that word proclaim because it's an interesting word. Again, this is one of the rabbit holes. So when I gave you my notes, I don't know if you realize one, I'm not real good at following my notes, but on the back side, on the inside of it, I gave you some of my, what some of my tools look like. And the, 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 Letter G followed by a four-digit number, that's a Strong's Dictionary reference, which some of you Bible teachers, you kind of, oh, I know Strong's. Yeah, it's like a big concordance thing and stuff. He also has the exhaustive concordance combined with his dictionary. And so that you can look and see what that word was in the Greek that goes with the English word, and you can find his definition for it. There's probably better dictionaries in the world, but I can't think of one because I love Strong's as a tool. It has been tested by time. And so I also then use Mr. Strong, Dr. Strong, to to get me some of the different verses where you can see how those words were used and, and see how, uh, how it's used so that you can get a better picture of what that word means in the context we're looking at it. Now, I gave you all that extra information because that word proclaim isn't one of those words I just realized. But what it is, is it's a word related to our word for the gospel, to be evangelists. But the difference is you're not just telling good news, you're showing, it's show and tell the good news. That's what that word means. And I thought, that's pretty cool. One, because show and tell is one of my favorite days of kindergarten. (laughs) Never outgrow show and tell. Isn't that right? (laughs) Our Sunday school teachers know that. But also physical symbol of the spiritual reality. There's a lot of things you can tell me and it's, it, I'm, I'm that rock. It's not going to penetrate. But if you can show me and get me involved, it'll stick. Uh, I've spent enough, long, enough time in Missouri that I can say it. You're going to have to show me. All right? And so... As you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show and tell the Lord's death. You get it? That we, and this is, and so it's never spelled out exactly like this, but it's, it's show and tell. That the other physical symbol of a spiritual reality is the one time when we are born again, we are washed of our sins We are proclaiming the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, and that we're proclaiming that we received the Holy Spirit. And that is in what? When we get immersed and brought back up to new life. The other symbol is this one here in which we partake 
of the body and blood, remembering where we were and what it took to get us to where we are now. And that I need that kind of intervention all the time. And that's why we partake of the body and the blood. We partake of the bread and the cup more than just once in our life. It's because it is a daily thing in my life. I don't partake of it every day, but that's why he says often that we would often be reminded and remember where we were and what he's done. And notice at the end of that verse, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the anticipation. One day he's coming again. Praise God is right. Oh, he's coming again. But until he does, I need more Jesus. Amen. I need to be partaking of Jesus. And, the re- and remember, this is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. So the, the little unleavened bread doesn't do anything magical. The shot of grape juice doesn't do anything magical. It's the spiritual reality of me choosing to be with Christ and to remember and to celebrate and to anticipate. So how do I do that in that spiritual reality? Through prayer, through being in his word, through fellowshipping with the believers, through my heart, my spirit with Jesus in all of those things. And I do need that more than once in my life. I need that all the time. I need thee every hour. Lord, I need thee. And so, that was a lot more involved than I thought it was going to be. But that's the pattern. And I love the fact that as a good teacher, the Apostle Paul isn't just saying, don't, 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 don't. He's saying instead, don't do this instead. Do do, do. Because he wants them to understand that we have a gift from God and that's what this is. But as every good gift is, it has to be done God's way. It has to be treated with the respect God tells us to. And so that's why In the following verses, verses 27 through 34, we have the prescription. We have, so we had the problem, and then we see the pattern from the Lord, what health looks like. And then here's the prescription to get from the problem to the pattern. And and just like any prescription, it comes with instructions, right? Right? And I'm looking at my nurses and my respiratory therapists and they're like, yep, you better follow the prescription because otherwise you aren't doing yourself any good or worse, you're doing yourself harm. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. And so what is the, what is the prescription then? Well, one is there's the warning If you do this in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But the instruction is, but let a man or woman, let a person examine oneself. 
and so let him eat the bread and the drink of the cup. It's that examining. And so, again, I gave you extra information on the back sheet, back side of the sheet, but we see here where a couple things worth pointing out. What is this whole unworthy thing? Because I think that's a, wor- that's a worthy question, right? What does it mean to be unworthy? Well, and I think in some ways we struggle with it because we have a different way of thinking of unworthy and worthy than the translators did, especially when you go back to the ones that were appointed by King James to translate from the Greek to the English. Because we understand we're not worthy anyways. Remember, we were the sinners who needed rescued from ourselves. That's not exactly what he's looking for. The word we might use better is to be unqualified or unfit. We've heard those words more recently, haven't we? To be unqualified or unfit. Because there's two ways to be unqualified or unfit. One is to to be unqualified means that you don't even have what it takes to do this. You need to get something in order to be qualified. But now you could have the qualifications for a job and yet still be unfit for the job based on how you are acting. You see that? And so there's you know, a qualified candidate, but I wouldn't hire them because they're unfit. Well, in this case here, we have both. You can be unqualified by this first question. How are you in your relationship with God? Because if you have not been, if you've not had the spiritual reality, you are not to partake of the physical symbol. Now, sometimes it can't be helped. We talked about this with baptism. We thought we made, you know, whatever when we got we thought we got saved and we got baptized. And then later on, we start feeling the conviction and we realize I was just following the crowd or I just felt pressured or, or whatever, but I never really was in this. And now I, I've asked the Lord to save me, to forgive me my sins and to come in and take in. And then we're saved. And so then that dunking that happened before wasn't a baptism then because it wasn't a physical symbol of a spiritual reality that had taken place. So the next thing would be is the Holy Spirit's going to say, you know, it's that time. You've gotten saved now. It's time to get baptized. And so then this one is the one that's for real because it's the one that is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Well, in like manner, we can't partake of the physical, we are not to partake of the physical symbol of the body and blood of Jesus if we've not partaken of it spiritually to be born again and forgiven of our sins. And so that is to be unqualified. And we see that in that idea of you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's what he's talking about, is that we are all born murderers because we are guilty of the murder 
of Jesus of Nazareth. He died because of us. But you know, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter says to this big crowd of people who actually were the ones who said, crucify him, and says, but you can repent and be saved. And we stand in the same place, even though our voices did not say, crucify him, we're still guilty, but we can be saved. And here's the amazing thing is what happens is we went from murderers to sacrificers. Because if we repent of the murder, if I cry out to God and say, forgive me of my sins. Now, I'm not saying that you have actually physically murdered someone, but if you've hated, it's there in your heart. If you've, you know, all those things that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. But as I repent of that, then it says in the scriptures in Isaiah that then you have made him your offering for sin and you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. And I mean, that's all I can say. I don't I, I can't explain it any better because I can't understand that heart of God to want to rescue people like us. But he wants to. And he says, that's, it's, it's, that's how it works. Is just, trust me, that's how it works. And I will transfer you from guilty to righteous. And that murder becomes a sacrifice. Okay, so I've, I've spent enough time on that part of unworthy. Is to be unqualified. So we must be born again. We must have trusted in Jesus Christ. The next question that comes to mind is the one that Paul is really dealing with here. He also is dealing with those that, that are not in right relationship with God because you'll see where he's getting on to him in chapter 10 about idolatry and going to the temples and, 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 and nonsense like that. And, and we're more idolaters than we want to admit. We may not have a little statue that we're bowing down to, but we've got a lot of things in America that are like a religion and we're practitioners of that religion. So you know what that is because the Holy Spirit just said, this is one of your little religions. You'll sacrifice anything to do that. Um, yeah. We've got that. Our hearts are idle factories. Covetousness is as idolatry, uh, the Apostle Paul says. Okay, but then are we good in our relationship with God? But the second part of that is, are we good in our relationship with one another? Oh, now he's really gone to meddling. Where are we in our relationship with one another? Because he says here in chapter 11 that... Again, in your examining oneself, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we don't judge ourselves, then we're chastened by the Lord and condemned so that we wouldn't be condemned with the world. So he says, therefore, when you come together to eat, do it together. This is the specifics of theirs, was that 
they had allowed division to form in the body of Christ. And that's what's kind of cool. Paul is playing with words here, isn't he? He's using the body of Christ in two different ways, isn't he? Really kind of three. Because we know what the body of Christ is. It was the one that hung on the cross. But the physical symbol of that is the bread that we break and we partake of. And the body of Christ is us when we come together in his name. And so are we coming together as one in his name? Are we one body of the Lord? Are we harming one another? And, and here's the thing. I have to practice this way more often than I enjoy is asking forgiveness. I, whether I think I did or not, I, I'm afraid that I've done you wrong. I've harmed you. I've sinned against you. And I ask forgiveness. And I try to be specific in that. And so like yesterday, I partook in that wonderful ritual of being a Christian, of asking forgiveness of someone. And they were very gracious and they gave it. But as I was going through this, it came to mind. And that's what I'm supposed to do in obedience to the Holy Spirit, right? Is ask forgiveness. And what's funny is that sometimes... We don't ask forgiveness because, well, they were worse to me than I was to them. You know what I mean? But the reality is, is that when I ask forgiveness first, even for my smallness, that may be the trigger that gets them to ask forgiveness of the bigger. But even if it doesn't, I've been obedient. And that's between them and God. My job is to be obedient to Christ, first and foremost, because I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. I don't want to stifle his voice. It is an awesome privilege as a believer to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit say, you need to take care of this situation. You need to ask forgiveness of this person. Oh, do I? Yes, you do. Okay, then I will. Because the still small voice of God is a privilege. In the midst of the earthquakes, in the midst of the raging fire, in the midst of the wind and storm, to hear the still small voice of God is a privilege. And we are the ones who stifle its voice. We are the ones who stifle his voice. He hasn't stopped talking. It's us who have stopped listening. And so we ask then, God, who who do I need to make things right with? Because I don't want to make the mistake, as, as the Apostle Paul talks about here at the end of chapter 11, where he says, if you're going to come together for the wrong reasons to hold these grudges and to have these problems, stay home. He just said that, didn't he? There's no need coming together if you're doing it to sin. Oh, yeah, that's just what he said. And so, preacher, you've preached at us a long time today. I did. There was a lot here, wasn't there? There was a lot. So let's just sum up two things. These are the big 
The big two, right? One is that when we come together to do the Lord's Supper, it is a time of giving thanks for what Jesus has done because we are remembering who we were and what he did to rescue us and that where we are now is only by his grace and by his help and that one day we won't be here anymore and it'll be a whole lot better. Our salvation will be accomplished. But even now where we are, part of the battle is in, well, that decision. Am I right with God? Am I good with God right now? Have I been saved? And then how am I with one another? Is there sins I need to confess and repent of so that when I come, I am both qualified and fit to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And it's because I've taken care of the spiritual reality so that the physical symbol is a joy. And so I don't know what the Holy Spirit is prompting this morning, but we're going to have a song of invitation. And it's just an opportunity to do business with God. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's, I can't examine you as well as God can examine you. And as well as you, if you listen to God, can examine yourself.